0: Hello, thanks for joining us today. We're going to pause and wait while everyone logs in. Hello, and thank you for joining. We'll get started in just a moment. Hello, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability, and thank you for joining us for this
1: best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke as a test tool provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies. And that's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We will save time after the presentation for your questions. If questions come up during the presentation, you are welcome to use the questions feature on GoToWebinar to submit comments as we go. So take a minute now to find the questions tool in the dashboard. At the end of the talk, I will share as many of your questions as time allows for our presenter to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we will follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So please don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We'd also be happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. Answer yes, and we'll send one to you. Lastly, a recording of this webinar in full will be available on the excelx.com website within a day or two. All right, that's it for housekeeping and now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Dr. Klaus Blake, director of the Reliability and Maintainability Center and research professor at the College of Engineering at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. He'll be presenting on how to lead and maintain reliability in a crisis. Klaus has directed the RMC for the last 12 years since retiring from Cadillac. He has more than 34 years of industry experience in various areas of manufacturing, continuous improvement, processes, and people including lean manufacturing, reliability and maintenance, competitive analysis, continuous improvement tools and techniques, new facility planning and implementation, industrial engineering, ergonomics and change management. Klaus is also a past two-year chairman of SMRP, the Society of Maintenance and Reliability Professionals, and helped initiate the organization. His most recent book is The Relativity of Continuous Improvement, Learning How to Work on What Matters. Welcome, Klaus, and thank you for being with us today.
2: Oh, thanks, Leah. Yeah.
1: Very, very good to have you. If you'll forward to the next slide, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the
2: RMC? Yeah, first, hi, everybody. As Leah mentioned, I'm Klaus Blake, and you know, thanks for joining me today. Uh, if you're not familiar with the RMC, uh, you know, we're not gonna get into everything, but uh, at a real high level that we do everything from assessments, benchmarking, best practices, uh, uh, R&M certification, uh, helping change workforce culture to being becoming problem eliminators, uh, training summer student interns and more. So uh, if, if you have interest, you know, look us up on, on the website or contact me directly.
1: Indeed. And Klaus, uh, with the RMC located at the university itself, you've had an active part in planning for continued operations under COVID, haven't you? Uh,
2: absolutely. Uh, both uh, the University of Tennessee and the ARM. Uh, see, uh, you know, have been transitioning uh, to this new normal, you know, and we'll continue to, uh, uh, I'll say, accommodate as needed for ongoing success. You know, we're all, we're all going through the same challenges and, and uh, cautiousness. So. Indeed, indeed.
1: If you'll forward to the next slide, I think we're starting with a poll. Yeah. All right. So, audience, this is your chance. I'm just going to launch the poll here.
0: There
1: we go. So, this is your chance, audience, to weigh in. If you've maximized your screen, I'm going to suggest that you reduce it back down so that you can access the radio buttons. But we'd like to know based on how it was before COVID 19, how effective is your business today? So, you only get to choose one answer. And obviously, these are sort of guesses, but uh, do you feel like your business is at least 20% less productive? Is it slightly less productive? Is it about the same or is it actually doing better? Now we ask these so that we have a feel for what you as the audience are going through and this informs how Klaus will present today. So we'd like to get, you know, at least half, if not 75% of the audience voting today. So we're a little over half at this point. So just give us your best estimates um, based on, on conditions, you know, end of last year. How effective is your business in comparison today? Less productive, almost the same, or actually doing better, depending on what industry you're in. So it looks like we have just about all the votes in. I'm going to close. I'm gonna share the results now. So it looks like about 36% of you say that you're at least 20% less productive, and 31% are slightly less productive. So the majority are on the less productive side. 26% 26% are about the same and 8% are doing better. Klaus, how does that jive with what you've been seeing and talking to people about?
2: Yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, you know what I've seen in a lot of different places. And and it's always good to see that some people are actually doing better. Uh, you know, yeah. either they were there digitally or sometimes uh, times like this force you to get there a little faster.
1: That That is very true. That is very true. Well, I'm going to turn the screen back over to you and you can take it away.
2: Okay, thank you. Yeah, okay, what we want to talk about in today's discussion, again, how to lead and maintain reliability in the crisis. You know, many things have changed quickly. So, you know, as, as reliability and maintenance activities continue, you know, you know, staying to or adhering to the new, we'll call it pandemic prompted standardized best practices are even more critical, obviously, because of the consequences. And we're going to touch on four areas. One is, you know. Just a little bit of background, I just think it's always interesting to look at our history and whenever there's a crisis, you know, great things have been accomplished. And then some challenges and opportunities of the before and after. Again, realizing, uh, you know, that, that we can't do things the same way and don't be afraid to do them differently. And then uh, a lot of the slides I'll put up, I'm not going to go through the entire slide because they're taken from a lot of different places. But I provide all the references of all the places where I got the slides and a lot of them tie into 40 50 60 page reports you know so it's a nice resource to go out and look at stuff and and hopefully uh, you know something you can use and we'll talk a little bit about the new normal and becoming resilient and then a little bit about uh, you know, leading in these times of crisis and uh, COVID-19, uh, you know, some have termed this as a black swan event. You know, so I looked it up. I, you know, I kind of knew what it was, but what's the formal definition, right? So it's a unpredictable event that is beyond what is normally expected of a situation, and has potentially severe consequences. Black swan events are characterized by their extreme rarity and their severe impact, and I thought this last por- point here was was unique and that it says, and the widespread insistence that there were obvious in hindsight. So it gets back to what you know, why weren't we ready for this? Now I think uh you know many are still just trying to figure it out and saying, you know, just looking up and saying, what the heck happened? So I think it's a you know, to me, it's uh, what I'm seeing everybody react to is a little more like uh the Wizard of Oz and and Dorothy here on the right talking to her dog Toto and saying, I'm feeling uh we're not in Kansas anymore. Well we we are definitely not in pre-COVID time anymore. You know, nothing really looks the same. And whenever there's a crisis, you you know, some will just be uncomfortable, you know, or frightened. Some will want to simply return to a safe workplace or continue to work from home because they feel safer. And some will take what they learned during the crisis, and I think more so important is they seek out what's needed for them to learn so they can come out better individually as an org- and as an organization and i think that's where everybody needs to be i mean who would have thought you know half a year ago that i'd go to i would go look into the bank like this early on and you know say i'm here to put some money in right and and uh, you know shortly here i'm probably uh uh 5 weeks to 2 months overdue getting a haircut so i've got a choice of uh you know going to get a haircut by a person in a mask while well, I'm probably wearing a mask or I can let my wife cut my hair and she's offering you know, both give give some angst you know but uh, these are all decisions we got to make along with, with what we do uh, at work and as well as our daily, daily lives and you know on the right everybody's going the more teaching and doing things online and virtually just like this webinar right. you know whether it's a zoom meeting a webex or something microsoft you know but uh, we did our first virtual boot camp with students going to internships this summer with multiple companies and so again you know everybody's figuring it out as as they need to going forward if you go back into a longer time in history you see what's what uh, what's happened historically And, you know, I've been through several things, not quite this bad, but I remember, you know, I think it was around 1999, we had the, I'll call it the fake Y2K crisis, you know, the computer clock issue, you know, the clock's not going to work right on the computer and it'll mess up everything, you know. And that was, you know, it was really a a nothing, you know, and and really the only result was a lot of IT people that were hired lost their jobs during that time. You know, then around 2001 was anthrax. You had to be careful not to spill sugar, you know, when you're getting coffee because people would panic. And then the SARS virus in 2003, and you know you go way back early on in the early history. You know in the, in the 1600s was the bubonic plague in England, and you look at that that forced Cambridge University to close, and Sir Isaac Newton before he was a Sir, you know you know he had to go home, and he was sitting in a garden watching apples fall fall off a tree, and you know look what happened. You know we got the universal law of gravity, and good good things got learned out of that. You know, basketball was invented, you know, uh, way back in the late 1800s to give uh, athletes something to do inside during the cold, but it was really during the recession in, in 1894 that Dr. Naismith asked Spaulding to design a better basketball, and, and the rest is history around basketball. Uh, it was an unemployed Philadelphia man that saw a game that that was somewhat similar he liked and he thought he could do better, and he started a new game in 1935 called Monopoly. Know, Rocky Road ice cream in 1929, Dryers ice cream. Uh, because of the the depression, they wanted to give people something to smile about. Well, I'm sure they're still smiling, uh, you know, because they're still selling that ice cream, and it, and I like it too. You know, but uh, getting a little closer to you know current times, you know, after the financial crisis of 2008, and to me that was personal because that's when I decided to take early retirement and, and go to the university. But there were a lot of young people and people looking for jobs, and it was a tough time also. And some of the people that might have taken desk jobs did other things. And guess what? Out of that time came Instagram, Uber, Airbnb, WhatsApp. And I think I think this pandemic is going to cause similar things. You know, there's going to be a struggle, there's a crisis, but good things will happen as a result of this also. Now, What's tough right now is that really more than 70% of the jobs can't be done offsite. You know, some of us are fortunate that we can do things remotely, but really more than almost 40% of the workforce are in small businesses. You know, they're the ones that provide those services, and, and they've got to be at work to make it happen. And if you include some of the medium businesses, now it's over half the United States, and then you throw in the production workers and maintenance and, and, if, and if it doesn't get better and in, 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 let's say in the longer run, it's gonna drive a faster acceleration automation and, and that, that causes more issues as, as far as unemployment. And, and so uh, again, we, we need to look at, you know how do we handle all those people that don't have that choice? I'm gonna to touch on, on several like select examples and show a lot of different sources, but as I said, uh, There's a lot more information here than we have time for. And the sources give you 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 60, 70 pages worth of information. So if you have that interest in those areas, please do go look. Um, Some of the sources are like the Manufacturing Leadership Council with the National Association of Manufacturers have done a good job and putting together some guides. Uh, Ford has a 60, 70 page guide uh, that's public that that people can look at. And just some of the things that's been talked about, I think everywhere is, is that, you know. Is a 24-hour COVID testing results daily online employee checks before you come into work. Uh, UT is doing that also. There, there's a daily check on a, an app that we use that before everybody comes to work, they have to self-answer some questions to get approval to come to work every day. And 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 masks are being worn. You know, no-touch temperature scans. Um, uh, again, uh, uh, everybody's wearing masks. Uh, if if uh, safe distancing is is not uh, a capable thing let's say in a plant then a lot of places are providing face shields you know like safe maintenance has to work close to a production worker and so on or from an assembly line they, they can't split them apart far enough so additional tests of safety are being done and, and again uh, some are putting more time between production shifts so so people can uh, have more time and not not running into each other and, and you know all the schools are having to look at the same thing. You know, uh, Ford workers are provided, um, uh, and I don't know if it's everywhere. In some places, but they're looking at uh, a watch that beeps when workers get too close. Whether it's a watch or a wristband, I've I've seen different applications. Uh, you know, adding more portable sinks, more hand sanitizers, no-touch faucets, soap dispensers—all all the things uh, uh, that will help and make people uh, seem safer. But but there will be hiccups because it's a global supply chain issue. You know, Mercedes started. Uh, it had to stop you know, after running short of parts. You know, Volkswagen had similar issues because their suppliers needed more time to get up and running. But you got to start. You got to get it going. Uh, on the assembly lines, uh, this is a Fiat Chrysler example, you, you know, it's just one of many in the different companies. Uh, you're going to see a lot more plastic curtains, again, to separate people uh, strictly for safety. And again, uh, you know, st- staggering start times. But the key point is really the message on top that an effective startup will require detailed understanding, teaching, coaching, the patience for, from all of us, because there has to be a significant amount of time and patience to learn new habits. And that's really what it comes down to is learning new habits. At Toyota, and I'm gonna read this slowly because this is an important statement. What employees will find upon the return is that virtually nothing is the same. Entering the plant is different. Working processes on the assembly line are different. Meetings with team leaders are different. Taking breaks is different. Eating lunch is different. Everything will be different. And The challenge is that you're going to have to break everybody's habits to start these, these new daily best practices. I mean, we all know restaurants, uh, if, if, you know, the few that are starting to open, it's different. Uh, uh, even in the cafeterias, if they're open at work, you're looking at markers on the floor, you're looking at reconfigured rooms, you're looking at plexiglass. So at least you can sit kitty corner like this, uh, you know, with, with uh, plexiglass in between. And, and uh, as it says here on the right, the first day and a half, or let's say two days, we'll actually be training to, to recalibrate and again, adjust those habits as best as possible. Now airlines, obviously they're you know really down on flights and, and they're struggling and had, you know, had a few tough starts, but I heard yesterday on the news that at least one airline uh, because they're requiring people to wear a mask and some people are refusing to wear a mask that if, if you refuse to wear a mask, you may get put on a no-fly list for that airline. So So again, the rules will be different. Uh, Apple's opening their stores, uh, obviously, but again, face coverings and temperature checks are required. Uh, Again, another uh, uh, source here uh, tied back into the early one has got a list of a bunch of stuff. Uh, There's nothing magical here, uh, but again, uh, some of the most common best practices communicated by the National Association of Manufacturers. And again, you can read all the fine print uh, around that. And they've divided a lot of their stuff into several categories. And I'm just going to mention some of these and, 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 uh, you know, again, the references around the bottom. A site access to mitigate exposure. Again, eliminate all visitor access. And, you know, are visitors going to be allowed in or is it just going to be the essential services, like as mentioned here, maintenance and the service technicians? Or are you going to allow third-party visitors? And then what checks are they going to go through? Are the self-certifying questionnaires? Then the visitors will also have to do that. Are you gonna do temperature screening? I I know uh, large assembly plants are doing temperature screening before you're allowed to come into work uh, outside the plant. Some examples of workstation measures to promote social distancing. many of those have already been discussed? Uh, The six feet apart is pretty much a standard for everybody. Uh, Slowing down production lines so people can be spaced farther apart. Again, the facial covering, if you can't, you know, you know, then you get a plexiglass mask. If you're doing maintenance or something that has to get closer, uh, for people in the office or administrative work, yeah, uh, they may get personalized keyboard covers. So you're always taking your keyboard cover along, regardless of what you have to do in the plant, and if, if you're not carrying a laptop around. And and, uh, and I think an important one is number thirteen on the bottom. You know, you can do all the cleaning, a lot of it at night, and so on, in a lot of companies but this is being done so the people see the cleaning and they feel safer at work. It says scheduling daily cleaning crews to come through facilities during the day rather than at night to show employees that safety measures are being taken. So it's not just doing the cleaning, the employees have to feel safe coming back to work. On facilities and traffic management, again, cafeterias, break rooms, we talked about closing you know, touchless appliances wherever possible. You know, some toilets and sinks will have to be closed. And so how does that impact, you know, timing and so on? Uh, Some doors will be propped open to eliminate touching. Some doors will be closed to eliminate easy access. You know, so again, all that's got to be looked at. Lots and lots of more visual controls on what the best practices are. You know, increasing use of radios, text messaging and so on. You know, time clocks are usually a crowded area, you know, in, in production plants. And so again, uh, you know, other technologies will need to be looked at, you know, whether it's something tied to the cell phone, the wristband that some of them are passing out or, or tied to the watch or staggering start times or additional time clocks. And, you know, obviously the easiest one is just social distancing markers. But again, that that's could be some pretty big lines. Uh, also, uh, you know, what are you going to do as far as getting more of the stuff out there? We're, you know, we're going to be uh, looking at getting a uh, you know, more hands-free sanitizing dispensers, and we'll probably uh, put some of these into our teaching labs, you know, as, as demonstrations, you know, that are pedal-operated, pedal, pedal operated, you know, reduce con- cross-contamination. Again, you can put any of your preferred gel or liquid in here and so on. So there's a website uh, uh, on the bottom if you're interested, you know, take a look. Shift in team design, you know, ensure that each worker is only interacting with a very limited number of coworkers. Now, as, as things are opening up, I see people starting to play tennis again, and I see certain groups meeting because they've kind of decided that, well, these are the four or five people that I always interact with, and we're all following the same safety practices, uh, so we're all pretty safe. You know, And, and, and it's kind of taken that mentality to work and saying that let's, let's kind of figure out how we can work in different teams so the same teams always work together, and, and that minimizes the potential spread of anything. Again, increasing time is seen between shifts. How do you divide workers within the same shift into smaller teams to avoid a lot of a lot of unnecessary contact? And really every handoff in a workplace needs to be evaluated. And then everybody's got their rules on Ill, illness or diagnosis response. So again, you know how do you trace and track if you do have an issue? Know, what's gonna be communicated to the employees uh, to help them feel safe. But at the same time, you've got to maintain the privacy of anybody that does have an issue. Uh, so I know with the university, they're doing that by designated areas and, and protecting the privacy of the people and so on. So you've got to you know, work with your HR and, and, and make sure that's being done correctly. Essential travel policies. You know, pretty much everybody's saying they're driving, if at all possible, and a lot of places are saying, now use your own car instead of a rental car if you feel safer you know, using that. And, and again, um, you know, you've got to commute the protocols and so on to people, your customers, if they're expecting to come to your place of work. Or if you're going somewhere, you need to find out, let's say, if we're going to do some training, the first question we're going to ask is, what's your safety protocol and what what practices are you following? Because here's what we're comfortable with and here's here's what we're doing. You need to have those kind of discussions. Uh, The next one they titled Returning Non-Essential Workers, I probably would have called this one Returning Non-Essential to to On-Site Daily Production Workers, you know, non-essential doesn't sound that good, but uh, it's really non essential to daily production. So companies are determining, you know, who can return to work, who should return to work, who can work work remotely for now or maybe forever. That could be based on job function, age, health, and so on. So, Everybody's looking at those practices. Uh, the University of Tennessee, like a lot of universities, is spending a, an enormous amount of time with dozens of committees and almost daily meetings and putting together safety plans, health plans. Uh, the students are coming back August 19th, you know, so a tremendous amount of planning uh, going into that. But we also have a Center for Industrial Services that works with companies in manufacturing throughout the state of Tennessee, and that information is public, and other states have those kind of agencies also. But they've put together a, a real nice return the work and recovery guide that's uh, roughly about, again, 60 pages. So uh, there, there's a link to that if you're interested, you, you're welcome to have that. Again, uh, you know, just, just examples of some of the things in there. This is the table of contents of that, that uh, Center for Industrial Services guide put out uh, by that group at the Institute of Public Service at the University of Tennessee. So I think they did a really good job on that. And it's got stuff on operations, restart, reintegration, you know, before work resumes, what do you do? You know, importance of supply chain, what type of mask and so on. So again, take a look if that interests you. Are you gonna ask a question here, Leah? What is this here?
1: (laughs) I am. I (laughs) am. Run. I'm going to give your voice pause and give the audience a chance to chime in here again. So same as before, if you have your screen maximized, shrink it back down so that you can answer this question for us. So Klaus has just put a whole lot of stuff up in front of us to think about. So what do you think your biggest challenge is in the next three months? Is it getting the business running effectively again? Is it helping the workforce feel safe at work? Is it scaling up to more digital technologies, telecommuting, or is it big picture issues like the supply chain and opening up? So obviously more than one of these may apply. Uh, Select the one that you think is the biggest challenge because uh, clearly this is a significant change and impact on everyone. So as you're thinking through all this, which is the biggest challenge? Is it getting the business running effectively, helping the workforce feel safe, scaling up to more digital or bigger picture issues like supply chain i want to get a few more people casting their votes and then we'll see how the group feels about this all right i'm going to close the poll here in just a moment we've got almost 60 percent of the audience voting i appreciate that and then i'm going to share the results And again, 33% is worried or challenged by getting the business running effectively. And then the same in helping the workforce feel safe. And then you could only choose one. So those two were probably the top two for folks. And then scaling up to more digital and then bigger picture issues like supply chain. Klaus, are there any surprises here for you?
2: No, I, I think it was just trying. To, I just want to get a feel here where everybody was at. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is going to be a very personalized answer based on where you're at technology-wise and what specifically you do as your business. You know, so mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I mean, even for the RMC, you know, we were moving to a little more digital. Well, obviously, this accelerated that for us. You know, we have the resources and you know, you know, different different uh, computer systems at school to do that to do that kind of teaching. But at the same time. Uh, you, you know our certifications. We look at implementation-focused certification. You know, so so some hands-on training is needed. So so it's always like, where do you go next, and how do you handle that? You know, so everybody has to answer that individually. So no no big surprises.
1: Well, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Carry on.
2: Okay. okay. The 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 new normal of becoming resilient. This looks a little bit like a doormat. You know that was intentional. So. Look for that. but It doesn't say welcome, but but stepping into uh, you know work or at home, you know, will never be the same. You know, maybe a few things just a heads up. Uh, you know, you know OSHA's uh, kind of they they dropped a few things early in the in the year to kind of say you know don't worry about this stuff, and, and now they're stepping things up again, and and they've they got two revised enforcement policies for coronavirus. You know, I mean, first they're gonna increase their in-person inspections at all types of workplaces, and they're gonna continue to prioritize the COVID-19 inspections and so on. So there's some more detail behind that, but that's probably the the gist of the first part. The second part is, it's revising its previous enforcement policy for recording the cases. and, and, And now they're saying they all have to be recorded. Now, recording a coronavirus illness doesn't mean that the employee has violated anything. But I think the tough part is going to be is that uh, OSHA guidance emphasizes that employers must make reasonable efforts based on the evidence, et cetera, to the employer to ascertain whether a particular case of coronavirus is work related. It's going to be tough. you know and, and uh, so I'd say if you haven't looked at that, you know you know google it, uh, you know have your safety and medical people look at that because those kind of things are going to come up. You know, what, history's shown us a lot of things, and and uh, you know, the, one of the things they've shown for sure is that once these kind of things happen, a lot of things don't go back the way it used to be. Um, you know, most of us hope that that uh, it's going to end in a few months. It, it won't, you know, you know, that fast. We don't you know. Everybody's waiting. What's going to happen in the fall? You know, you know are, are they going to have, uh, you know, have have a a shot for that and how well is it going to work? And so it's going to be a lot of wait and see over, over the next year, year and a half. And what most of us consider normal, you know, has already fundamentally shifted. And, and a lot of it is not going to shift back. You know, and as it states here, after 9-11, there was all kinds of security stuff put in place, cybersecurity, governance, surveillance, surveillance. You know, you know, that hasn't got away. And, and, and similarly, the COVID pandemics already accelerated a bunch of trend changes and a couple of these listed here, the online learning we talked about, working from home, you know, different ways to provide services, uh, consumer goods, you, know, you know, a lot more online ordering of everything. And, and you know once the critical mass as it states here gets used to doing it a certain way, it's going to be tough to change your behavior back because they'll find out some of this is a little bit easier. I think what's also going to be significant is it says about 16% of the uh, U.S. workforce, and, and more so in Europe, you know, where there's dual-income households, they can't really easily go back full-time to work. Meaning, if they're not telecommuting, unless something happens with childcare, you know, if this it's not just the university students, it's also the K through 12, with you know everybody shutting down school systems and doing stuff online. You know, if if they have to provide some kind of child care or have somebody do this, it's going to be tough to go to back back to work physically. So these are all things that we didn't have to worry about before. I I think there's already been and there will be you know, you know very serious look at what's our global supply chain and what should be elsewhere and what should be at home. I mean, uh, you know some of the basic things like rare earth minerals, the PPE shortages we had some of the need for specific medical equipment, you know, key key pharmaceuticals, I think there's going to be definitely shifts in supply chain and where that's going to be done as we go forward. So this kind of stuff doesn't happen again, at least to this extent. And, and I, you know, I think the key statement is the last one on the bottom. It says, for the first time in modern manufacturing history, demand supply and workforce availability are affected globally at the same time. You know, so, so a lot of issues, it's, it's not just a Health crisis—it's—it's it's everything crisis. As I mentioned, uh, you know, Ford's got a pretty nice guidebook, and, and again, you can follow the links to to get there and download that uh, their guidebook. Um, i saying 60, 70 page—I think it's exactly 64 pages—and I was glad to see that some of the guides are mentioning managing stress and anxiety because I think the emotional or psychological toll is growing. Will be as important, if not more important, to address than just the physical disruptions and the distancing. You know, this this is tough on people. So a little bit on leading in crisis and what to focus on going forward. There's probably been five words that have been used the most, you know, in the last half year. Uh, We used three or four of these at the university uh, long before I saw them at McKinsey. uh, McKinsey has been publishing some good stuff around corona and businesses and so on, so I've been following a lot of their stuff, and and they did a a little definition and guidance on these five words, but like I said, three or four of these we've already used at the university long before they saw the McKinsey stuff, so I'll call these the five most uh, used words going forward uh, for, for the virus. The first is resolve. You know, the need to determine the scale, pace, how fast you're going to go, depth of action, how deep do I need to change the organization. And that's just not the business. It could be at the state level and also different areas. And I think people are going to have to really rethink their business models. And as it's quoted here, as one CO told us, I know what to do. I just need to decide whether those who need to act share my resolve to do so. You know, p- people are wanting to work safe as they should, and businesses are working hard to put in place safe practices to make that happen. But at the end of the day, the business needs to be profitable profitable, or it isn't sustainable and all of that doesn't matter because at the end there's going to be more issues. You know, so, so it's always that fine balance and, and it's going to be tough. Resilience. The health crisis is really turning into a financial crisis because of all the uncertainty and, and people don't like to work in uncertainty and that's not gonna change for a while. And again, people are waiting for what's gonna happen in the fall. You know, is there, how fast are we gonna get a vaccine? And then kind of keeping an eye on it when it does come out, you know, is it working? and and really the the shock of people's livelihoods and so on could be you know could or will be impacted you know as 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 this goes forward you know and so so again uh, you know, what happens next in, in the next uh, I, I'd say between now and the next 3 4 months is going to be critical even more so than this first half year Oops. Okay, the next one is a return. The weakest point in the chain will determine the success or otherwise of a return to rehiring, training, et cetera. And then again, what again happens in the fall? Uh, Everybody's following the safe priorities. Uh, again, trying to change habits because that's the most important thing, changing habits. Or, you know, I'd say in general, people are pretty good about wearing masks, but not everybody. And, And how do you handle that? You know, and, and that's going to be a tough call. It's one thing to do at a work. How do you handle it socially out, out in the public? You know, if, if you're at a store and, and, you know, two-thirds of the people are wearing masks, and a third don't want to, you know, and aren't doing the social distancing. I, you know, so that, I think those are potential issues. Uh, you know, when you're working with suppliers, it's not just your direct suppliers because it's a global issue. You know, all your suppliers, you need to look at it really is a big picture now, what's going on globally and who's all impacted. And what I see here, you know, we talked a lot about changing habits, you know, historically, at least North America facilities in general, you know, have not been that good at instilling daily best plant floor practices. You know, it's probably the best way to say it. And and, uh, the question is, is, you know, are are we gonna do better here in the long run? I think for the short run, most people at work will follow the best practices because of the consequences of the risk involved if they don't. But is that sustainable and what's gonna happen over time, especially if the virus starts to dissipate some and things get better, how good will we or the workforce be at sustaining best practices you know, for COVID-19? Okay, reimagination. And as it states here, a shock of the scale would create a discontinuous shift in the preferences, expectations of individuals, you know, and you can read all the rest of the stuff on consumers, what they're buying, and so on. But I think the important statement is the one that's kind of bulleted on the bottom. Supply chain safety and availability will outweigh will outweigh globalization efficiencies. It's going to be much more important that we have a solid supply chain and availability than just trying to go globalize for low cost. And so I think there's going to be significant changes in parts of the supply chain. And, and again, we'll never look at some of those things the same way I think again. And as, as mentioned a little bit, you know, what I've witnessed over many years is that people have a difficult time during and when they have to work with uncertainty. Now, and that's not going to change for some time. And but I think at the same time, people if they have a mission, and and they get focused around something, they're they're good at uniting around a crisis. You know they, they they're good at finding out what what quickly really works, and they're willing to try to try different approaches. But you know policies will be put in place uh, to to do that. But this new normal is gonna be so different. You really need a workforce that's flexible and willing to change as we learn more. And I think those companies that have a really good continuous improvement process and have a workforce that already does that is gonna come out a lot better. That's a little bit about what's, what's trying to be said on the next slide is the importance of continuous improvement that uh, some of the words are by McKinsey I won't read through it essentially says those companies that are resilient and have good continuous improvement processes do much better when there's issues than those that do not and it points again to many other presentations that I've given on plant floor continuous improvement and developing a plant full of problem eliminators you know it's do you have a thriving continuous improvement process? How robust is it? Do you have small teams really wanting to make a difference? And again, those companies that have that, I think will fare better coming out of this virus. And as it states that on the bottom, it will not be enough for many companies to tweak their business model. They will need to rethink it. And you've got to decide, you know, where's your business at? You just need to retweak your model or do you really need to look at things totally differently? Kind of winding down in, in, in a couple of slides. Uh, in the last week and a half, we're on the weekend, where uh, my wife and I were looking at uh, a couple of specials and and, uh, and one of the news clips, on Bon Jovi was on, and he was kind of writing songs on the fly, and and I thought this was appropriate. You know, one of them was, if you can't do what you do, do what you can. You know, and and uh, he was actually in addition. Uh, taking uh, music lines, and I can't remember if it was a kindergarten or first grade class, but again, it shows how much the kids really pick up. And I, I think that this generation is going to have, a they're going to feel that significant impact of what's going on right now. These young kids, kindergartners and first graders were writing lines and sending it to him online so he could play the music. And they were words like, I know my parents are trying their best, but I know they're really stressed. You know, these are the lines that these young kids are doing, you know, and so on. So, so I think that says it all. But I, but I think as we go forward, you know, we need to individually look at how do we all focus on actions that deliver results? We may all have to do our job a little differently. You know, it's not just about what you like, but about what do we need to do both individually and organizationally to, to be successful? So, so people need to think about not how do I do my job remotely. It should be how do I deliver results regardless of what I have to do. And so it's it's really a different continuous improvement mentality. Well, I thought it'd be good to end up with a slide on on cabin fever. Uh, you know, and uh, my wife goes to the store most of the time. You know, when I do go out and you know see see people and do stuff. As they're going to the store, I see everybody's a little more edgy, more short-tempered at stores, you know, and a little more grumpy maybe. You know, they're, they're a little tired of being locked up. And you, know, you got to keep telling yourself uh, it's just the COVID response due to cabin fever. And, and you're probably there too, you know, so take a deep breath before you respond because you're probably there also. So uh, I'll end up by saying uh, be safe, be kind, and, and good luck as you're working towards your new normal. So Leah, I'm gonna give it back to you.
1: Yep, that is a good closing note. And I'm going to share some of the questions that have already come in. And I want to encourage everyone on the line to type in more questions now, as classes save this time for us to do some Q&A. So first one um, is about, again, what normal means. And we ran that first question, that first uh, poll question about, um, How effective is your business today compared to before COVID, right? And someone asked, what does that mean? What is getting the business running effectively even mean? Because their company won't come back to normal until the demand for their products and services returns,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I'd look at it two ways. One is, can they wait to survive that? Or do Mm. they have to do they have to totally rethink their business? I mean, there's some businesses that are saying, "Here's what we used to do, but we're taking half the business and doing something totally differently." Or is is there something that we can rethink uh, that we can offer that people need as a result of this coronavirus? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if if everybody's waiting to just uh, you know have it come back as usual, then then you know that may work or may not work but depending on how how sound your individual company is financially. How, how long can you wait to respond?
1: Yeah. Do you think there's and going I, to be a lot of retooling happening? So a lot of a lot of changing of the actual output.
2: I I think so. In 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 many cases, I mean, the ones that are going to be hurt the most, I think, are going to be like maybe the tertiary suppliers, you know, the small suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that are the major suppliers can probably handle a lot of it because they're usually uh, uh, working with a lot of different. Let's say, if it's automotive, a lot of different companies. But if it's one small company that's counting on you know, they make one part, you know, tied to one car, and that keeps them in business. And all of a sudden, they don't need that, you know, what what do they do instead, and they probably can not survive a long wait, you know, so again, and again, remember, that's half the businesses in the United States, you know, whether it's entertainment, yeah. restaurants, or small manufacturing. Yeah.
1: How is the university addressing students that are concerned about participating in in-person classes? Does uh, does a public institution have an obligation to provide a virtual or online option?
2: The uh, well, the, I, I think any student. I mean, it, ha- it hasn't come up that anybody wants to go totally online, but uh, the, the you know the classes could be taken totally online if they. I think if they choose to do that. Uh, the way we're going to do it at the university is when the students come back in August, they're going to do a week live and a week online. But could they come in and 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 listen to it online? Sure. hmm hmm Okay. And, and I I I think we see more of the other. That everybody really wants to come back full time live. Yeah. It's it's more of the yeah. other push. Yeah. This next question is more
1: about manufacturing, and in particular about environments that were designed for long daily hours long shifts long day rotations how do you adjust for that
2: are we talking about like people that are working 12 hours a day i'm not quite sure i understand the question
1: right so so um so is there so during the in in this new worker safety environment is there A forced change on long shifts. Do is there any kind of safety concern about working those longer shifts?
2: Well, if you know if you're still working the same amount of hours, I don't think it's going to make a difference, right? Who's who's to say when you're more at risk, right? Is it because you're at work, you know, three 12-hour days, or whether you're coming in shorter hours for five days, right? It's really it's really Mm -hmm. back to the best practices and how many hours are you at work, but I think. The more you can isolate to smaller groups, you know, having less transfers of things that other people are touching and so on. Maybe long shifts are better if you're always working with the same half a dozen people. Yeah. So
1: Yeah. We have some questions in about supply chain because indeed there is a lot of, of concern about plants that have had to suspend operations um because of uh, spare part non-availability. And obviously that's specific to maintenance there. And you know, you called that out. Do you see, and you and you call that remanufacturing other things, what do you see as the best tactics that people are deploying? Uh, you said, you know, make it a security and availability priority versus a cost. Can you get more specific?
2: Well, I, I would say, you know, first of all, you know, everybody knows or should know what their critical parts are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and and they should have more than at least a, they should have at least have a backup supplier in case there's issues. And they ought to look to see where it's coming from and how affected are those areas. And and as a minimum, they may they, they ought to be looking at getting a 3D printer. Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's there's so many things that can be done with 3D printing. It's not your end all solution for everything. But a lot of times you can make a part that's a pretty good bandaid to get you there until you can get that part. That is a great suggestion. Yeah.
1: Uh, here's an interesting question. Do you think there will be a change in the way that the industry looks at reliability engineering due to the changes from this p- pandemic?
2: I, I, I don't think reliability engineering in itself changes so much. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the philosophies are still the same. It's it's really a matter of, uh, it gets back more, how do you, it's not just reliability, but it's reliability and maintenance or maintainability is how do you teach those skills when when half of that I'll say are hands-on skills, right? How do you teach precision maintenance? You know, you know, how do you get into those those kind of things? You can do some of that by video, some of that with uh, with with, with um, maybe virtual glasses, you know, things like that. But at some point, you really learn by touching the stuff, you know, and, and so on. So it, so I think some of that's going to come back, but I don't think philosophically it's going to change things around, you know, reliability or the concepts around there do
1: you i think the person is asking do you think it will become more important obviously the the root benefit of reliability meaning that you have less less firefighting less panic uh fail
2: okay yeah 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 i I can definitely see that you you know okay that that, that as as we go forward the risk involved i mean mean, it's just like um the people that do a high level uh let's say 75 percent of north america does too much reactive maintenance well, you know, you know, my data shows that if you do more reactive maintenance, you, you've got more safety issues just because right. logically right. it makes sense because you're putting people at risk. Well, this is pretty much the same question. As you get more proactive, if you're doing if you're doing your condition-based monitoring, uh, if you maybe get some machine intelligence and, and you're now doing prescriptive maintenance where it's telling you what to do when, you minimize the interventions, well, of course, you're going to have less issues. So I think if that's what was being asked, yes, I agree with that.
1: That that is what was being asked. And I think that there's a little bit of a of an ask there about um as a reliability community and as leaders, how do we get that message across that this is the time, this is the hour to increase our reliability emphasis?
2: Ah, uh, that's been a lifelong challenge of mine. You know, um, <laughs> I mean I mean uh, I mean I write two articles a month for a fish and plant and, and uh, one article I wrote, I think it was near the end of last year was the RCM paradigm shift. You know, it's kind of saying the data's been there for decades as saying this is the right thing to do. What's it gonna take to get leadership there and everybody else to help follow those practices. And it's part of that plant floor continuous improvement. I mean, I'm working with teams right now and groups of plant managers to implement long-term change uh, within plants to teach them how to not just change cultures, but to ask the right questions to get there and then sustain those cultures. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, that, and that's a long-term process, you know, mm-hmm. not just saying, oh, we're going to do proactive maintenance. You know, it's the same reason TPM works or doesn't work. And why do you never get to autonomous maintenance and the final step of that? It's a culture thing. You know, why does, you know, only RCM work sometimes? Why does, I see 70% or more of lean manufacturing fails. It doesn't mean it fails. You get less than 50% of the real benefits that you can get out of it because people don't instill the required continual learning, the mentoring of the plant floor. It's it's that, it's that um, I'll call it organizational health part. You know, you know, people are good at um, uh, going after the performance and operational success, but they gotta be uh, equally excited uh, going after pushing uh, you know how do I how do I improve my organizational health? So again, I have an entire plant full of problem solvers and eliminators uh-huh. you know, versus, uh-huh. a, versus a few people trying to save the world you know, in the, in the plant. Yeah.
1: I think based on the number of um, questions here, that we should probably post afterwards a list of some of your top articles, Klaus, about sure. driving cultural change, because you have some great suggestions there. And it, as you say, it's not a a quick process, but I think that that is the root.
2: So yeah I've they're not. they're all they're all the same price they're free yeah, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I will get that list from you, and then I will post it uh to this group afterward.
2: Sure.
1: I have an interesting question from someone who's wondering if the jobs that have been cost as a result of covid won't that balance out by the ones that are created as business changes? Do you think it'll be a net net or do you think it'll just look so different that we don't know?
2: All right. So, so if I understand the question correctly, you're saying are there going to be enough new jobs to created to balance right. out the ones that are lost? Okay. Right. Um I'd say yes, but not in the short run. There's going to be a lot of people suffering in between there. You know, it's kind of mm. like say say, say if uh, you know if if this thing gets worse or stays worse. I mean, the increase in automation is already there. That's even going to accelerate more, I think, because robots don't get sick, right? At least, yeah. And so so I think as we get more machine intelligence and automation and all that, there's different kind of jobs needed. Like, you know, right now, you know, if I had another thousand reliability engineers, I could place them across North America. You know, there's just as big a shortage of data scientists, you know, and so on. So so I think uh, I think there is a balance, but there's going to be a time lag in there as to, as to you know, what you can do because the skill, you know, you can't just transfer one skill to another. So. So, yes, I think that's going to happen, uh, but at the same time, there's going to be a, a, a time there where people are going to struggle because they're not going to have all those new skills.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, we, have, uh, we still have questions
1: coming in, so I'm going to keep trying to get to them. This is another supply chain question, and it's more specific. So, there are some industries where supply chain has been an art, right, and they've really worked hard and they have tight connections, but what about other manufacturing sectors or service industries where there isn't that... That existing coordination between the supply chain and uh, the consumer, um can we cross supply some of that knowledge? do you think?
2: Yeah, I think they're saying can we can we learn from there? Sure, but you know I mean the key thing is having at least a basic system that works, and, um, and we wrote an article, gosh probably a couple of years ago now uh, with uh, Phil Slater, uh, who has a lot of books out on supply chain and give a shout out to Phil over in Australia. And, and uh, essentially, the data that that we published, and and I'll say this carefully, was that um, all the MRO inventory systems and all that stuff, um, I don't see them as working. It's not getting that much better. <laughs> you now, it's kind of the nicest way to say it. All the data for somebody that works, I mean, the the Phil Phil over there works on this full time, and as and as we look at it, we're saying. We don't see the improvements, you know, all the millions mm. spent and all this stuff. We, we just, yeah, it doesn't mean individual places aren't doing better and there aren't success stories, but on a bigger scale, we're not seeing the successes. So, so I, would, I, would, I wouldn't get all hung up about, you know, what can I do and learn? It's what should I be doing and do I get the basics? Do I need to, you know, go in and do your planning and scheduling, do us you know, parts rationalization? There's a lot of basic things you can do. And if you do okay. those well, you'll be just as well off.
1: Okay, great. Okay. All right um i'm reading this last question that's just come in um and i think it goes back to a lot of what you've said about this is a lot of work and a lot of very active problem solving to maintain social distancing on the floor and then how to maintain that how to how to sustain that and i know you've given us a lot of, of great advice there but um any last thoughts on that
2: yeah, that, that, that gets right back to, you know, the comments I made, you know, why does RCM fail half the time, TPM, right. lean. It's, it's back to what are you doing? And whether it's a KPI, a process, you have to have a change model. You know, mm-hmm. when, you have a, when you have a change model, there's some key things that you have to do. First of all, yeah, you can put your K, a KPI there and then kind of put it at different levels. So it makes sense as you go down to the organization kind of call business plan deployment. But when you put that out there, the employee at the lowest level has to look at what needs to get done and say, "Okay, I understand what they want me to do, and, and I know what to do different to make a difference. It's not just a number on the wall. So they have to have that understanding, you know, of, of what needs to get done. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you, and then the employee has to see the structures in place, you know, evidence that structures are being put in place with the right incentives to support that change or that new. Uh-huh. And then you have to be willing to train the people or educate them to have the skills, the opportunities, so they get confidence, so they they know the skills and saying, okay, they've also helped me become capable so I can do this. And then lastly, your leaders and people on the floor better be following that because if they're not role modeling it, you're done. so, So all of those have to work together and it gets back to that continuous improvement. You know, how do you mentor and coach on a daily basis teams out on the floor? And those that under, really understand lean know that it's a forever job. Yes. And you have, you have teams out there that ask questions every day. They don't say, go do this because it's your standardized work. They ask the right questions to the uh-huh. problem solvers. And what are they really doing? Number one, they're bringing everything back to what the best practice is you know, by by, by developing problem and at the same time they're changing the thinking process to develop more problem solvers or eliminators. And and Maybe. that's what ma- and that's what makes lean and all, whether it's lean, TPM, RCM, this COVID nineteen response successful, is having that thriving continuous improvement plan for entering process that's successful.
1: I think you just answered our last question in the process, so well done. Um, I want to encourage everyone to write down Klaus's email while it's on screen here, kblake.utk.edu, because obviously he is a fantastic reference, and Klaus is active on the speaking circuit, so I'm sure you will get another chance to to hear his ongoing thoughts as this uh, the situation evolves. As you said, the next three or four months are going to be pretty pivotal here. If I could get you to forward to the next slide, Klaus. On July 8th, we'll be welcoming Kevin Clark to the same webinar show, and he'll be discussing remote asset management and other benefits of connectivity. And for those of you who know Kevin, he is a staunch proponent of practical connectivity, focusing on connected systems and teams to improve the overall workflow. Um, and how to make that meet business needs so it'll be more on the digital emphasis versus the cultural but for those of you who are working through this problem i think that uh kevin's presentation on july 8th will have uh, some additional helpful information and then if you'll forward one more time klaus when i close the webinar down today please stay online everyone it'll take just a moment and then you'll see the survey link appear so, we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a few moments to complete the survey because your feedback will help us keep the webinar content relevant and helpful to you. And then, if you, you know, obviously everyone who completes the survey will receive a copy of today's presentation. And also during the survey, you'll see a question about receiving a certificate of attendance. So, if you want that, answer yes to that question and we will follow up with a certificate for you. This recorded webinar will be available on xlx.com within a day or two. And that is it for today. So thank you very much, Klaus. This was such a pleasure.
2: Well, well, thank you, everybody, and uh, be safe.
1: Indeed, indeed. All right, thank you, everyone. Have a great afternoon, and
0: we will see you next time.